Well, this time I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Again, we'll come this afternoon to have a season of prayer together. And so we'll bring the word, we'll sing another hymn, then pray together and seek the Lord's face together as a congregation. And uh, again, as been my pattern, I suppose, off and on the last number of months for this meeting, I want to take a, a slight branch, a, a slight tangent off the studies in John's Gospel. I want to do so looking at these verses here in Acts chapter uh, 2, and I'll make the connection in a few moments when we come to uh, the message. But Acts chapter 2, um, the verse number 37, let's read uh, this passage together. Of course, it's dealing with the outcome and the effects of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's brought the words of rebuke and censure against the people for their uh, crucifixion and their role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men to as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Amen. Let's bow together, please. Let's ask the Lord to help us now as we come to the word of God again today. Eternal God and Father, we again look to thee in Christ's name. We Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and the temporal provisions we enjoyed over lunch. And we pray now for spiritual help to strengthen, to quicken our minds, to enable us to study and understand the word of God. And so we pray, dear Father, for the help of the Spirit. Enable preacher and hearer alike to give careful consideration to the word of God, and that it would indeed enrich and nourish our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. In light of what's just taken place downstairs, have we just had Christian fellowship? After all, we call it a fellowship lunch. Has what has taken downstairs, has that indeed been, uh, at least in part, a manifestation of Christian fellowship? My attention, I want to turn your attention today to verse number 42 of Acts chapter 2. And that word, fellowship. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. What is church fellowship? See, we've been looking at John chapter 13 through 17 in recent times. 
And really what you see in those chapters is Christ establishing a pattern for church gathering. That as the disciples gather in the upper room, we're really seeing a pattern of what church life will look like in the New Testament age. There is conversation among those gathered around the table. There is the requirement of humility and sacrificial service. There's the engagement in the Lord's Supper. And of course, there's teaching the Lord, teaching the disciples around the table. There are, there are many things and features that we see worked out in the New Testament church. And in fact, the pattern of John 13 through 17 is almost epitomized in the words of verse number 42. The apostles' doctrine, they are really affirming and expanding upon the teaching of Christ. Fellowship, this idea of communion around, uh, again, the church of the Lord's people. Breaking of bread, of course, referring to the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then in prayers, you think of, of John 17 and the Lord leading the disciples in his prayer. These, these are things that we see in John 13 through 17. So therefore, in what sense do we engage in Christian fellowship? Are we engaged in Christian fellowship? Is it clearly... At the very beginning of the New Testament church, this is an emphatic matter and practice of the church. Alongside other things, fellowship is there. And so it is, of course, important to ask ourselves the question, are we engaging in such fellowship in these days here in our own church? Well, you'll see in your outline again for uh, this afternoon's message that there are five things that I are, four things, sorry, miscounted, four things. Uh, that are before us again today in terms of this matter of fellowship and explaining it in terms of the scriptures. And the first thing is to note this matter of fellowship of shared communion. The word fellowship itself has a very broad meaning. The root word is the word for common. And from that you get words like partnership, fellowship itself, or communion. And so my heading, somebody could say, well, are you not just saying fellowship of shared fellowship? Is it not a redundant heading in that regard? Are you not repeating yourself in the heading? But what I'm trying to emphasize is there is one form of communion that is foundational and then leads to Christian fellowship. And without this one form of communion, there can be no true Christian fellowship. One of the ways in which the ancient translations, going back to the, uh, again, the early church period, the Syriac version of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, puts it this way. They communicated in prayer and in the breaking of the Eucharist. And I don't see it as a Catholic thing. And they're describing the Thanksgiving offering of the Lord's Supper. They say they communicated. And so rather than seeing four separate things, they understood the word fellowship to then really qualify what takes place in the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what they're saying is, well, this is fellowship in terms of what we do in communion with the Lord around the table and also in communion with the Lord in prayer. Now, I think there are four separate concepts here, but I understand why they would have come to that conclusion as they made their translation. Fellowship is only true fellowship when it arises out of a shared communion with the Lord. The foundation of Christian fellowship is that it must be just that. It must be Christian fellowship. And Christian fellowship must be based upon the foundation of our fellowship with the Lord himself. 
And so we see this idea of, of, of communion in terms of, well, yes, having a meal together and those things. And Alexander says this, in rarest sense, at least in the New Testament, is the vague one of society or social intercourse. He's describing this word communion or fellowship in, in Acts chapter 2. And he says, the word fellowship only in the rarest sense speaks of social interaction. It's got other meanings more readily used in the New Testament. And so having a meal is important. That's part and part. He says this. At times, it does speak of the mutual participation of the same food. It's used that way. But he's emphasizing the point that this spiritual communion must begin with our fellowship with the Lord. You see, turn across to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, where you again, you'll see that for your memory verse for this week, if you're still doing that in the, in the, the bulletin. You'll see I signed 1 John chapter 1 for that memory work. Verse number 6, it says there, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. This is our word, or our word for fellowship in Acts chapter 2 is here being used regarding fellowship with the Lord in 1 John chapter 1. And he continues, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Again, there's various debates as to what is meant by the fellowship one with another, and I certainly find my mind switching from one to the other over the course of the years. Back in verse number three, it says this, that which you've seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and treat our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And from that verse, there are those who therefore affirm that verse number four, when it speaks of fellowship one with another, is describing the fellowship that the apostles and John would have with the church. Horizontal fellowship between Christians, but that is based upon the fact that we have fellowship with the Lord. Now, there are others, and I acknowledge this, who say the fellowship one with the other is describing our fellowship with the Lord. But, but again, in, in 1 John, when you read the later chapters, you're seeing time and time again this issue of loving the brethren. And so I do think what John is dealing with here is the importance of first and foremost having communion with the Lord. But the result of that communion is then the spiritual fellowship we have with one another. What fellowship hath light with darkness? If we're going to truly engage in fellowship in the house of God here, it is between those who share this communion with the Lord. Those who are saved by God's grace, those who delight in prayer and worship. And so if we're trying to define fellowship, it has to be more than social engagement. Anybody can talk to somebody else. Social engagement is no difficulty you don't need a spiritual dynamic for that to happen. And so Christian fellowship, being based upon fellowship with God, must have that spiritual component to it that can only be true for those who are saved. And so you think of this interaction you may have in the world. You may be friendly. You can talk about politics. You can talk about sport. You can talk about finance. You can talk about all of those things. And you may have agreements. There are unsaved people who may agree with you politically, who may follow the same sports team as you do. There's agreement. But what fellowship of light with darkness? 
And you can't have agreement on the things of God unless you're both converted by God's grace. And therefore, this fellowship involved in Acts chapter 2 is a fellowship that arises out of those who've been saved by God's grace and come into communion with God. Which in itself, therefore, implies that part of this fellowship is going to be much more than social engagement. It's going to be a delight and an agreement in the things of the gospel. Sharing in what it is to be saved. Sharing our mutual cares. Sharing our joys in the Lord. Because we are those who agree in our fellowship with the Lord. So that's the first almost foundational thing. This, if we're going to define this fellowship, first of all, it is fellowship of shared communion. But the second thing is, it is fellowship of contribution. Contribution. And that, I believe, is how it's primarily used in Acts chapter 2 here. Contribution. Verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Now the word common that's used there in verse 44 is the root word from which fellowship then comes. And so it has this idea of of sharing in contribution to the needs of each other. That was clearly part and parcel of the early church. But you wonder, is there ongoing application? Well, yes, there is. There are all manner of ways in which this idea of having all things in common is misunderstood. It is not advocating Christian communism. It's not advocating that at all. Look at verse number 46. It says this. They were breaking bread from house to house. That means some people owned houses. They had property that was their own. And so the idea you see there on of people selling their property and giving it to the church, that was not a compulsory obligation. It was something they were permitted to do and it was encouraged, but it was not compulsory. And so this idea that, well, we all have a compote. Can you imagine that? We're going to have one church bank account. All your pay is going into the church bank account. And you want to buy a bottle of milk, you've got to apply to the church to get the bottle of milk. That's not the idea here at all. And yet some people have that concept of this early church. That's not it. Rather, what you're seeing is those who are wealthy were able to contribute to the needs of the poor. And there was a, a fellowship in that sense, having all things in common. People did not view things as, well, that's mine without any spirit to help and support the church of Christ. Let me show you that just in a, in a few texts. Verse number 26 of Romans 15. Romans 15 and the verse number 26. We're going to see here that this word for fellowship is used in several occasions for financial contributions. It does have a financial and monetary aspect to it. Romans 15, 26. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain, and here's our word, contribution. That's the same word for fellowship. A certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Do you see that? This, this idea of, of having all things in common and a willingness of one group of churches to support those churches in Jerusalem who were struggling with financial uh, constraints. You've got the same idea in 1 Timothy chapter 6 regarding advice to the rich that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Same word. Willing to fellowship, willing to share with the needs of the saints. And again, by the way, if we're having one common pot, 
an equal standard of financial, if you like, stability of, of the entire saints. There's no such thing as a rich person contributing to those who have need. There's the recognition that there are those with different financial abilities in the church. But those who are wealthy, they should be willing to fellowship, to contribute to the needs of the saints. And then one last reference over, over in Hebrews chapter 13. Turn across there. Hebrews chapter 13. Again, dealing with the same, the same issue here. Verse 16. But to do good and to communicate... Forget not, for such sacrifices God is well pleased. The same word used here, communicate, forget not. And the, the idea is of being willing to do good. And what is that good? In part, it involves this communicating, this supporting and helping the needs of those in the church. We, we, we've lost sight of this in so many ways. The necessity of the church actually functioning in a way that is fellowship in the language of Acts chapter 2. You see, the immediate context of Acts 2 is in this direction of financial support and help. So what's the application for us today? At least in part, it is the fact that fellowship involves sacrificial service. I think that's about as general an application as I can give from the particulars here. It is that if we are truly involved in sacrificial fellowship, it's going to involve serving one another. Like we see in John 13. Humbly washing each other's feet. Sacrificially serving the good of the church by giving ourselves on their behalf. I was preaching in Orlando on Friday evening and I preached on the text in Colossians chapter 4 regarding Archippus to take heed to the ministry he'd received and he should fulfill it. Again, I'm making the point that the ministry word there speaks of gospel ministry. But it is the word that we get our word deacon from. It's used of all manner of service in the work of God. And it's a reminder to us that the body of Christ is made up of members who serve in various ways. The gospel preacher is a servant of the church, a deacon of the church in that sense. The ministry is an act of service. But he's not the only servant of the church. The entire body is to serve one another. And so you get people with various functions. But if you are doing nothing to minister to others in the church, there's a deficiency in your Christian living. Christ saves souls, puts them into local churches, that they would minister to others in the church. I'm not going back over last Sunday's sermon, but I want to emphasize again that we all are duty-bound to humble ourselves to serve the body in whatever way God has equipped us and gifted us to do. That's the fellowship of contribution, this sacrificial service. The third thing then is the fellowship of, con- of, of cooperation. The fellowship of cooperation. Because the word is used in this way in Philippians chapter 1. Turn across to Philippians chapter 1. You see, as the early church grows in in Acts, we see fellowship in the advance and the extension of the gospel. They they, they cooperate, they they work together. They support the apostles, they support the elders, and there's growth and progress, as our brother Dan mentioned in, in in, in the Sunday school hour. What you see in the Great Commission is a church being filled with the presence of God and then going out and working together for the advance of the gospel. 
And Paul mentions that in Philippians chapter 1. It's a verse number 3. Here again our word fellowship is used. And Paul gives thanks to God, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Their communion, their partnership, their involvement in the extension of the church of Christ Jesus. And so how are they involved in this fellowship? Well, they were involved financially. That was part of it. I'm not going back over all that, but please do note chapter 4 and the verse number 10. Paul says to the Philippians, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, for in you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. And again, it's describing the fact they were burdened for the mission work of Paul. And that's one of the ways that we share in fellowship with the body. We hear of missionaries. You know, in Australia or Liberia or Jamaica or somewhere else, uh, we, we have a burden, we have a care for them. I mean, well, how can we help them in their labors? Verse 14, notwithstanding, ye have done, ye have well done, here's the word, that ye did communicate, there's fellowship again, same word, with my affliction. And he's describing the fact, and verse 15 makes it clear, that the communication involved involves giving and receiving. Supporting the work of the gospel is an aspect of Christian fellowship. And so you say to yourself, well, I, I, I can do nothing for the Lord's kingdom. I, I don't have the gifts to speak for the Lord. I don't have this gift or that gift. And perhaps you, you find yourself with ill health and difficulties. What can you do for the kingdom? You can still give for the progress of the ministry. For the advance of the mission field, you can still use your resources that God has given you for the extension of the kingdom of God. Not only did they fellowship in financial terms, but they also fellowshiped in prayer. Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse number 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. It's just one example in Philippians. I could turn to the other portions, of course, where Paul exhorts the church to pray for him. But here we're seeing this prayer in terms of the Philippians praying for Paul. They're praying for him. And they're fellowshipping with the gospel. What's going to happen here in the Lord's will very shortly is true Christian fellowship. That we pray for the work of the gospel, praying for missionaries and ministers, that the kingdom of Christ will advance under their watch. That's fellowship. True Christian fellowship. You've also got the fact they fellowship in terms of their own personal witness. Chapter 2 and verse number 16. Paul exhorts them to hold forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. Again, there's this recognition that as they partner in the gospel, they themselves are laborers together with God. Not just the apostles or the Bible teachers, but the entire congregation laboring together with God. Again, this is Christian fellowship. And so, Monday, Tuesday, you find yourself handing a tract out to someone, speaking a word for the Lord, what you're doing and handing out that tract or a word from the Lord is, you're engaging in Christian fellowship. You're fellowship with me in the gospel, with your missionaries across the world. You're partnering with them in the same single common objective of making Christ known. And you're part of the fellowship of the saints. What a privilege. What a blessing. 
Don't ever think to yourself, I'm just doing my one wee job for the Lord. That one job is so vital in the the Lord's work. That you're part and parcel of the great body of Christ's people. Fellowship in these things. So there's this fellowship of communion, and a shared communion, contribution, and then also cooperation. Finally, there is the fellowship of conversation. And here I go back to my initial sort of definition of things. If this fellowship is truly spiritual, if it is based upon communion with God, then it will govern how we speak the one to the other. And there will be this fellowship of social interaction but not based upon social things only, but upon things that are deeply spiritual. Turn across now, I want to turn your attention to this now, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians, and I've referred to this already, but here I want to draw your attention to it in your own Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And what I want you to see is, I want you to see the terms that are used uh, really synonymously in this passage 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what I want you to see is the three terms that are used here. Fellowship, communion, and concord. Or Agreement. Agreement is something that is not assumed, but expressed. I cannot agree with you until I know what you think. It's just simple. You you can shake my hand at the door, and you can wish me a good day, but there's no agreement there unless I know what you think. And so you see here, fellowship involves this sharing of thoughts and opinions based upon the word of God and then enjoying that common agreement. How can two be agreed? Or how can two work together unless they be agreed? There's a sense of of communion. And so how do you express that in the church? Well, we sing the same hymns and we agree. We pray the same prayers and we say amen. There's just this fellowship of agreement when those of like precious faith delight to worship together in the house of God. But even beyond that, there is that sweet time of conversation. The believers, like those in the road to mess, they're walking together and they're discussing the things of the kingdom of God. That is so very, very important. And so we think of the agreement expressed in our words they are words of edification, exhortation, and encouragement. We are to edify each other, to build each other up. We are to exhort each other and encourage each other. We are to do these things, again, for the mutual benefit of the church. If you are not engaged in Christian conversation with others in the church, you're missing out. You're not enjoying part of what God has given us in the body. And not only are you missing out, you're not contributing the way you ought to contribute to the well-being of the body. We're all given the gifts of understanding and then the ability to talk about these things to strengthen and edify and build up the body of Christ. Let me just show you the example of Barnabas and then we'll close. Look back at Acts chapter 4. 
Barnabas, of course, is known as this son of encouragement, son of consolation. Verse number 36. says, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. He is that great encourager. He, the fellowship that, was, that Barnabas was part of was a fellowship of encouragement. And what does it say over in chapter 11, then verse 23? How does Barnabas, how does he go about his work of consolation? Well, verse 22, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which is in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. There's, there's a son of consolation, engaging as his name was. Fellowshipping. In conversation. Building up the body of Christ Jesus. It's good to have a meal together. But that's not the end of Christian fellowship. It's good for us to have those times to sit together and talk together. But if we're going to engage in Christian fellowship, then all of these things must be present. If we're really going to be a New Testament Christian church. Now, by God's grace, I believe we are. And the exhortation is not to begin. It is to abound more and more. To do better. To advance in these things more and more. That we'd edify each other, strengthen each other, encourage each other. And that Christ indeed would be preeminent in our lives and in our church. Amen.